Thank you, Father Aaron. And it is a wonderful, wonderful privilege to be with you. This is an honor to both be renewed in fellowship with uh, Father Aaron, but also to meet some of you, to renew some uh, friendships and fellowship with some of you as well that I know from the past. Some people uh, find themselves in places where they do not like where they are. More specifically, they do not like the jobs that have been assigned to them. Uh, this past summer, I joined uh, a new ministry, and as part of joining that ministry, I was told, you're going to have to go through some training. And there were two parts to the training. One part was uh, online information about the company, some things we were supposed to do, certain procedures that we needed to follow. The second part of the training was to be coached or to be part of a process where a, another coach, another chaplain would take you through what you were to learn to do. And so it came a day in which uh, Larry, my coach, my trainer, took me to one of the places where he meets every single week. We met in the lobby. We went up to about the eighth floor. We punched in a code, and then we walked into an office area. Quite honestly, the office area was uh, very bare. There were about uh, 10 people in a large room of probably about 25 desks. And so Larry walked over and introduced me to Joe. And here's what Larry said. He said, Joe, how are you doing this week? Joe just kept staring at his computer. He said, oh, oh, okay. And Larry said, well, well, tell me what's going on. How are you really doing? And Joe responded, uh, listen, uh, I'm doing okay in my family life. Everything is great there. But he said, I really don't like this job. And he went on to say that he was an accountant and he was working long hours. Sometimes the company would send him to the opposite end of the state. And while he was there, he was supposed to do certain things. Working long hours, didn't get to see his family as much as what he did. And he said, I, I really don't like where I'm in at, at right now. Let me translate that. What Joe was really saying is, I don't like this job. And if there was an exit, I would get out of here as soon as I possibly could. Ever been there? Ever been in a place like that? Some people don't like where they are. They don't like their jobs. There are other people that don't like where other people are in their jobs. In, in fact, they complain about those people. They uh, criticize those people. I'm sure that some of you here will occasionally turn on the TV. You will watch a, a news program, a news outlet, and you will watch a commentary or you will turn on uh, one of the sports stations and you will hear a commentator there talking about different things. It amazes me, especially in the sports world, that on Monday morning, tomorrow morning, there will be commentators who will be saying, uh, the quarterback was lousy. They'll be saying, what's that guy drop? Why don't they bench him? That's the kind of thing that will go on. What amazes me in that situation? The people who are making the comments were never out on the field. They've been away from the gridiron or the game for maybe 20 years. And yet here they are making comments, criticizing other people in their places as if they could do it better if they were just there. Some people don't like uh, their places. They don't like other people and where they are in their places. Wouldn't it surprise you if I told you that the church is not exempt from those kinds of attitudes? 
Not long ago, um, I was sitting at a table in a men's ministry that I'm a part of uh, early Thursday mornings, large group of men. And uh, we were talking casually. Some things had been happening in the church. There had been changes that had been made. And obviously, several of us at the table had not, had not been asked to give permission about those changes. And everybody around the table had opinions. They thought about those things that were taking place. And I, I reflected on that on a number of occasions. And then I'm assigned Numbers chapter 16. And it makes me sit up and think about the places where we are, the places where other people are, and what God thinks about our places, even in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I have to come back and ask the question, what does God think? What does God think about your places in life? What does he think about your jobs? What does he think about what you think about other people? And what does God think about his church and where the church is in terms of its current existence? To answer that question, I'd like you to take your copies, whether that's an electronic copy or hard copy, and turn again to Numbers chapter 16. I'd like to take some time just to look at what's happening in this passage of Scripture. Now, here's what we can do. Uh, you can hang all of my thoughts on these three things. Here's what it is. You can take my thoughts and you can hang up on the passage because what we're going to do, we're going to say, what is going on in this passage? What is Moses that I happen to believe is the author? What is he doing in Numbers chapter 16? So we'll look at the passage. After we look at the passage and discover what he's doing, we're going to take some time to identify a principle, a principle that I've been praying that you and I will take with us into the rest of our lives. And then the other side of the principle, we're going to say, how do we practice this principle? What does it mean for us? So keep that in mind. That's where we're going. Everything will hinge on that, the passage, a principle, and then how do we practice that principle? Now, as we get to this passage, one of the things I want you to know is that it also can be broken down into three different parts or three different scenes. Uh, an Old Testament professor by the name of Robert Alter, who uh, had been for a number of years at the University of California, Berkeley, and uh, in his days, he wrote a book, and the book was called, uh, called The Art of Biblical Literature. And in that book, early on, he says, uh, every Old Testament account, every Old Testament narrative can be broken down into a beginning, a middle, and an end. That's pretty simple, isn't it? In fact, that's the way this passage breaks down into a beginning, a middle, and an end. And I've given the beginning, middle, and end some titles. For example, what I see Moses doing in this passage is that, first of all, he is reminding. That's, that's the first major movement. He is reminding then the other side of reminding, we see that there is rebellion and there's some rebelling taking place in the part of people. And then on the other side of that, we see returning. So I want to talk about those things to see what Moses is doing when he talks about reminding and rebelling and returning. First off, when we look at this passage, we discover that there is a rebellion take place and there are some characters who are involved. In fact, there, there are two groups of characters. The first group involves four different men, Korah, Dothan, Abraham, and on. It's interesting that after this first verse, we do not see anything taking place after that. One of the things I realized that I've already forgotten to do is I, I forgot to talk about the reminding, and the reminding actually takes place in the previous uh, chapter in, in uh, 
Numbers chapter 15. I have to get back there because everything that Moses is doing and saying in Numbers chapter 16 rests on the last paragraph of Numbers chapter 15. Would you notice in this chapter, uh, verses uh, 37 through 41, that Moses, or it's actually the Lord speaking through Moses, tells him, you tell the people that they ought to take tassels and they ought to put them at the corners of their garments. Now, I pondered that for a while. I don't have a solution to that this morning, whether it was uh, on the bottom of their garments, whether it was around the waist. All I know is that Every time uh, uh, an Israelite, a Hebrew, would look down at, at those tassels, it would remind them of certain things. Notice that he says in verse uh, 38 that one of the things that they are supposed to do is they're to have a blue cord that is a part of that, that tassel. What would that remind them of? It would remind them that they were part of royalty and they were part of a kingdom. Every time they looked at that tassel, were citizens of a kingdom. Not only that, Moses goes on to say that they needed to understand that there were commandments in this kingdom that were being given to them, and they were to obey those commandments, Moses says, so that you will not follow your fleshly hearts. So they're part of a kingdom. They need to remember that. They're reminded of that. They're reminded that they have commandments to live within this kingdom. And then there's something very significant in verse 41. The Lord says through Moses, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. Twice he says, I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. Another way of saying that, I'm the commander in chief. I'm the one who is in charge. I'm the king. I have delivered you, and now you are to follow me and to remember that you're part of a kingdom and that you have commandments living in this uh, kingdom so that you can live right before me because I'm the Lord, I'm the king. So that's the reminding. Then that reminding leads to the rebellion that I started to talk about. Begins in chapter 16 and goes through somewhere around about verse 30. And one of the things we see happening in this rebellion, there are characters. I mentioned those characters. There's four of them mentioned in verse 1. And then at the opposite end, there are two other individuals, namely Moses and Aaron. And those four individuals seem to be leading the charge in a rebellion. And they're basically saying, uh, Moses, we don't like the way you're doing things. We don't like your places where you have been appointed and what you're doing. You'll notice that the charge goes something like this, beginning in verse 2. And they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, to be specific, chosen from the assembly, well-known men, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far. All in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Uh, Korah and the others were not necessarily totally wrong in that, that statement. If you were to go back and look at Exodus chapter 19, one of the things that God said to the people of Israel, you are a chosen nation. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation that's set apart by God. So it was true that the whole nation was to see themselves as part of a priesthood, or at least to see themselves as holy. And so they come and they say, Moses, Aaron, it's not just you. You're not just the ones who should be the priest, but we also ought to have a charge uh, with respect to that. One of the things that strikes me is that these characters that we're introduced to, 
is, is that they seem to be individuals who um, are, are somewhat uh, dissatisfied with life, and everything they're saying is related to dissatisfaction. Would you notice also that they are somewhat obstinate? I say that because in verses 12 and 13, we are told this, and Moses sent to call Dothan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and they said, we will not come up. They're obstinate about the command that has been given to them by the appointed leader of the people of Israel. So we see these characters, they're obstinate, they're derisive in the things that they do. I also want you to notice not only the characters, but would you notice the course of of their life and what they are doing, how they are responding along the way. For example, they make these accusations. We saw one of the accusations uh, around about verse 3, but there's another accusation that appears somewhere around about, I think it's verse 18. And Moses said to Korah, be present, you and all your company, before the Lord, you and they, and Aaron tomorrow. And he tells them what you need to do is you need to bring censors. So they make this accusation. That accusation is by an assumption. It's amazing to me that it's almost on the spot, these 250 people along with these four leaders, and they are bringing their censors. They're offering up these censors to God, almost as if they assume that they had a right to this. Now, why do I say they assume this? Because God had said earlier, he repeats it in Numbers chapter 18, that only the family or the sons of Aaron are to serve as the priest, the one who will bring the sacrifices. They'll go into the holy area outside of the most holy place, and they are the ones who are to bring the sacrifices before the Lord. They were the only ones, no others. And yet they're making this assumption, we have a right to do this. And so, uh, they accuse, and then they have this assumption, we're going to bring these things, and, and so we have a right to do it. They must have had them ready. They must have been planning this for a number of days. And so Moses says, well, bring your censers, and you're going to offer these things up before the tent of meeting uh, tomorrow morning, and we will see what God says about this. So there's an accusation, there's an assumption, and then would you notice that Moses makes an announcement? That announcement uh, begins at uh, verse 25. Follow along as I read. Then Moses rose and went to Dothan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart, please, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away. Then drop down to um, verse uh, 28. Moses goes on, and he says, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, and that it has been uh, of my, uh, it has not been of my own accord. If these then die, as all men die, or if they are visited by the um, fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me to speak to you. Verse 30. But if the Lord creates something new and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them and they go down into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. 
So Moses makes this announcement after they make an accusation, after they have an assumption, and almost immediately the ground opens up and Korah and the other three men fall into the depths of the earth, identified as Sheol. They're destroyed. Something else happens. Fire comes down from heaven because you remember there are 250 other men who are bringing their censers, offering this up to the Lord, and fire strikes, and they are all burned to death. An announcement has been given, and God follows through with his word exactly as he said he was going to do. Now, keep in mind, what I'm saying is the way this passage breaks down is it starts with a reminder in the last paragraph of the preceding chapter. Then there is rebellion, and Moses describes how the rebellion take, uh, appears to take place. And then there is a returning. And here's why I refer to it as a returning, especially in verse 50, we see this happening. Would you notice that Eliezer is appointed to return, and Moses says to him, Round about uh, verse uh, 36, and he says, Eliezer, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go in, collect all of these censers that were in the hands of these 250 men who had been burned. Can you imagine, can you see that scene in your own mind? Eliezer is walking out, and he's walking through smoke and rubble, and there's the stench of death. And he's picking up these sensors. Some of them are probably still hot. He takes them somewhere else. And what he does, he piles out the bronze. He makes it into some sort of a liquid. And then he covers the altar with what were these former bronze sensors. He covers it. So much so that people, every time they come to the tent of meeting and the altar that is outside of, of the temple, they're going to see it. Eliezer is returning to the rubble, and the people are returning to see the terrible sin that has taken place and the consequences of that sin. I want you to notice also that they are returning to a cause behind the situation. It actually goes back, and it starts in verse 9. In verse 9, it says, as Moses speaks, is it a small thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself? What does he mean by that? One of the things we discover in the Pentateuch is that the tribe of Levi, there were a number of families in that. One of the families was uh, Aaron and his sons. They were the priests. They were appointed to be the priests who went into the most holy place. However, Kohath had uh, some sons, and they were appointed to take care of the instruments of the tabernacle every single day. In other words, every time the pillar of cloud or the pillar of fire uh, would start to move, the people knew they had to move with it. And here's Korah and uh, members of his family, and they are picking these things. They are wrapping them in a very reverent manner, protecting them along the way. They are carrying the tabernacle exactly the way God said that they are to carry the tabernacle. And so Moses says to them, this has been your assignment. Do you see that as a small thing? Or look over at the end of verse 30. Moses says, what has happened is these people have despised the Lord. Underline that word despised in your mind. They have despised the Lord. They've despised the assignment that has been given to them, and they have despised the assignments that other people have in the community 
of Israel. And every time they return to this altar, they're going to be reminded, this is what we did. We despised it. And there were consequences to that. What's interesting to me is that the people also return to their sin because beginning in verse 41 all the way through to verse 50, one of the things we discover is that the people return to their sinful ways, their sinful attitudes. We are told that they start to grumble. They are complaining. One commentator says they weren't just looking towards the tent of meeting and looking at Aaron uh, and Moses, but what they were also planning to do was to attack them. But something happens as they return to their sin. God also returns to his ways, his ways of mercy and kindness and grace. He says to Aaron, here's what I want you to do. Now, keep in mind, God is ready to destroy them. I would have been on God's side at that point. Yeah, get rid of them. We don't let these people around. But Moses, knowing the mercy and grace of the Lord, he comes and he says to uh, Aaron, here's what you do. You get a censer and you walk among the people. And the text says that Aaron was walking between death and life because a plague had started to permeate the community of Israel. 14,700 people died that way, more than the ones who had been destroyed by falling into the earth or the fire coming down from heaven. 14,700 were destroyed that day. And yet God in his mercy, as Aaron is walking through the community, some died, some are restored to life. Would you notice in that last verse, it says, and Aaron returned to Moses at the entrance of the tent of meeting when the plague was stopped. He returned to the tent of meeting. What does that mean? It means Aaron's returning to carry out his responsibility as an intercessor. And I suppose in some ways we could say, because of the way the rest of the book of Numbers unfolds, the people are returning to their propensity to sin. This passage is a warning passage. Every time the people of Israel read Numbers chapter 16, they probably thought, boy, I better take this seriously. That's the way I've been reading the chapter over the last couple of weeks as I've been studying Numbers 16. I, I better take this seriously. In fact, there's a principle that comes out of what Moses is doing. And if you take anything with you, this is what I hope you would take with you into the rest of your life. When we despise our places, God will put us in our place. When we despise the places of other people, God, both in his wisdom and his mercy and his holiness, he will put us in a place of chastisement or judgment. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, and I want to address the question, but apparently the speaker today has not heard about the gospel. I've heard about the gospel, and I want to talk about it in different ways. But we need to ask this question. If God puts us in our place and he puts other people in their places, then where is he putting us? Here's one of the places that he's putting us. He's putting us under 
authority. That's what chapter 15 verses uh, uh, 39 through 41 is basically saying, that we are reminded that we are under authority. We are under the authority of God Almighty. Everyone, whether we realize it or not, everyone, whether we accept it or not, we are all under the authority of the Lord God Almighty. Back today, if you are going to the Bears game and you're a gracious and generous person would like to give Denise and me your tickets, we'd be glad to take them off of your hands. But if you go to the Bears game today, here's what will happen. From the time you move into the parking lot, from the time you move into the stadium, you will be under authority. In fact, your ticket will probably say you're in a certain section, in a certain row, in a certain seat, and, uh, and you're supposed to go to that section and that row and that seat. And if you're not in the right place, an usher will come along and say, uh, excuse me, <laughs> these people are supposed to be over there. You need to move. You're under authority. And when the players run out onto the field, they're under authority. They're under the authority of team management. They're under the authority of the referees and the umpires. What they say, whether they like it or not, they are under the authority of the referees for the rest of the game. We are under authority. All the time, we're under authority. It's important for us to remember that we must follow authority or there are consequences to what we do. When we despise our places. When we despise the places of other people, God will put us in our place. He's going to put us into a place of authority. Something else he will do. God will also, on occasion, put us in the place of judgment. Now, here's what I know some of you are thinking, and I anticipated this, that you would say, uh, that the gospel says that when I trust Jesus as my Savior, Jesus took all of the judgment that I deserve, and therefore I'm no longer under judgment. I understand that. I believe that with all of my heart and soul. But I would call your attention to the fact that sometimes God even puts Christians under judgment. Listen to this, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to be coming to the Lord's table in just a matter of moments. Would you listen to what Paul says to the Corinthian church, beginning in verse 28? He says, let a person examine himself, then and so eat of the bread and, the, and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. God puts us under judgment. We can still have his mercy and his grace, but when we get out of our places or we despise our places, God will intervene. God puts us under authority. God puts us under judgment. God also puts us under mercy and grace. And we see that in this passage. Thank you, God, that it ends with the idea that someone is going through the congregation to appeal on their behalf, to ask God to pour out mercy, and God does. And read through numbers, and you see this happening over and over and over and over again, that God is a merciful and gracious God. Maybe some of you saw um, 60 Minutes last Sunday evening, and because it was uh, September 11th, they, they spent some time focusing on what happened back in New York City. 
And there was story after story after story in that documentary about the fact that there were firemen who could have very easily said, listen, (laughs) I'm off my shift right now. I'm going to go home. But they didn't. They went back into burning towers. And many of them lost their lives so that they could extend mercy and safety and protection to others. That's what our God has done for us. He has sent a great Lord and Savior into the world to rescue us and to give us life forevermore. I've read through this passage, I don't know how many times in the last couple of weeks, and I told you that I I find myself being convicted. I'm convicted about the fact that um, in my past, I, I didn't necessarily like where I was. My church wasn't necessarily growing the way I thought it should have grown. If you would have said to me, what would you like to, I'd like to get out of here as fast as I can. Or I looked at other people, other pastors and other teachers, and I said, listen, I'm as good as what they are. Why is it that God's blessing them and he's not blessing me? Why can't I be in a position like that? And every time I've thought about those things, my life has been filled with shame. But I come back to the fact that Jesus is merciful to people who haven't always walked in his ways. Here's what I want to challenge you to do. In light of this text, I'm going to encourage you to examine your own heart. Take a look. Do you despise your job today? Do you despise other people who work in the same organization that you work for? Where they are, do do you despise what's happening? Examine your heart. Do you despise other people in the church where they are? The assignments that have been given to them. And if you find the Spirit of God revealing those things in your life, I'm going to ask you, as I'm challenging my own heart, to repent. To repent. And then embrace the role of a worshiper and say, Lord, I'm exactly where you want me to be. I know you'll put me where you want me to be in your own good timing, but I'm exactly where you want me to be. So I'm going to worship you. I'm going to make your name great wherever I have the opportunity to do so. And when you do, God will be glorified. And you will be blessed. Our Father and our God, I pray that you will take this lesson, apply it to our hearts, and then transform us so that we will be genuine Christ followers, glorifying you in everything that we do and everywhere we are. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.